In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malion and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malion and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters to return to the country of to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was and with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for... I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray together. Father, now in these precious moments, this amazing story, this, this amazing account of you 
Ruth, Naomi, would just come alive to us. The truth would challenge us and minister us today through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. When Benjamin Franklin was ambassador to France, he occasionally attended a club that met together, spending most of its time searching for and reading literary masterpieces. On one occasion, Franklin read the book of Ruth to the club when it had gathered together, but he changed the names to French names so that it would not be recognized as the book of the Bible. When he finished, the French were unanimous in their praise. They said this is one of the most beautiful short stories that they ever heard. They demanded that he tell them where he had run across such a remarkable literary masterpiece. And it was to his great delight to tell them that it was from the Bible. See, the book of Ruth, only 85 verses long, is a literary masterpiece. It contains a wonderful love story, a romantic story of redemption. There is faith and loss. There's hope and despair. There's intrigue with the building plot and a surprise finish. This awesome story is not just about its main characters, but it pictures God's redemptive love for each one of us. The book of Ruth, with its positive and encouraging message, is said in the politically chaotic and spiritually destitute time of the judges. These are dark days, the days between the time of Moses and Joshua and before the monarchy. The very last line in the book of Judges describes these dark days. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are the years of the cycle of rebellion and restoration where Israel would rebel and forsake God. Then God would judge them with distress and invading armies. Then the people would cry out to God, admitting their rebellion. And then God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, to rescue them. Then after a time of peace, they would again defy God and the cycle would start over. One commentator said, against this background of national irresponsibility and weak character, Ruth, a Moabitess, and Boaz, a Hebrew landowner, shown as bright examples of purity and faith and responsible living. The Ruth narrative provided a gratifying reminder that even in the darkest times, God was at work in the heart of his faithful remnant. In the midst of the hardest and darkest days, God is still at work. God is still at work. Ruth shows us that God continues to work out his plan no matter what earthly chaos is going on. That God continues to work in the lives of ordinary people. Regardless of the disruptive political setting or the spiritual vacuum that may be present. In one Jewish tradition of the Hebrew Old Testament, Ruth comes after the book of Proverbs. So thematically, the book of Ruth comes after the biblical description of a Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of character and strength. The exact same words used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman in verse 10 is also used to describe Ruth in Ruth 3.11. They're virtuous Noble character, excellent women. 
the book of Ruth and another Jewish tradition was the first of the five festive scrolls called the Megaloth. The book of Ruth is traditionally read at the Jewish festive celebration called Pentecost, which marks the end of the grain harvest. The first day of the church, as recorded for us in the book of Acts, was on the day of Pentecost. And the scripture that was read that day was Ruth, the love story of God's redemption. Ruth is a story of how God loved and accepted the castaway, the outcast, the one that was thought to be unlovable. That's the story. That's the theme of the very first day of the church when all those from all these different nationalities came to know Jesus as their Savior, the true kinsman, Redeemer, had come. The book starts with tragedy and, and loss and Moab and ends in triumph of God with Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabite, becoming the great-grandmother to King David. The book of Ruth powerfully displays the providence and the sovereignty of God. But as the scene of the first act unfolds in the story of Ruth, we find tragedy, loss, desperation, and agony. See, sometimes tragedy can kind of sneak up on you. It comes like termites, you know, at an old wood frame house. It eats away for years. Then one day a rafter of the house gives way and you've realized what's been happening. Sometimes tragedy simply hits you full on, knocks you down. The shock of it leaves you disoriented and confused. Many times when tragedy is extreme, you don't know where to turn. You don't know how to move on. You don't know the next step to take. We're dazed and we're confused and we're questioning. It's common for us to look for a reason. Why the tragedy? Why this? But the Bible doesn't give us the kind of answers we so often are looking for. The Bible does give us is hope in the midst of the tragedy. The Bible tells us that tragedy, no matter how encompassing it may be in our life, never has the last word. The last word is always triumph. God always has the last word. As we study the first chapter of Ruth, we see four characters in our study and how they responded in four different ways to suffering and loss. First, we have Elimelech. Elimelech ran away. Verse 1 tells us that there was a famine in the land. The famine could have been a natural famine caused by a drought, or it could have been a famine caused by invading armies stealing their food, both of which happened in the times of the judges. It's also not stated as to whether this specific famine was a judgment of God upon the children of Israel. Throughout the book of Judges, God uses these outside forces to bring the children of Israel to repentance, to turn them back to following the one true God. What we know is that the famine was the presenting cause for Elimelech to question, to question whether he should stay. Should he do his best to ride it out with his own people in his own country? Or should he leave? Should he go south and, and perhaps there'd be more food that he could find there and more easily acquired? But see, such a move would require him to leave his country and to leave his people and to go to a foreign land whose people did not follow his God. While the famine was real, 
you get the feeling from the text that Elimelech was in a vast minority of people who responded to the famine by leaving. See, instead of trusting God, took matters into his own hands. Would he subject his family to live in a foreign land, willingly putting them in a direct connection to those who not only did not follow his God, but they actively pursued a false idol, Kamosh? This detestable idol, Kamosh, was worshipped with child sacrifice. Would the ease of better commerce override his spiritual responsibilities? Elimelech chose. He chose to leave Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread, to seek bread in a foreign land in Moab, a country that just years earlier under King Eglon in Judges chapter 3 plundered and terrorized the people of Israel and forced them into servitude. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, came to a decision point. Would God provide for me? Or do I need to take matters into my own hands? Should I trust him and obey him? Or should I do what is right in my own eyes? This was so prevalent in the time of the judges. Would God be my king? Or would I be the ruler of my fate? We can understand God's displeasure of his choice by God's providential judgment on his actions by his untimely death and the death of his two sons. Perhaps he justified his move by reasoning to himself, he's only gone for a short time. Verse 1 says that he was only going to sojourn in Moab. He reasoned that it's okay because I'm not going to stay very long. It's so easy to justify the wrong actions in our hearts and our minds rather than holding to the firm truth of God's word. Been any years in your life right now where you've justified getting off the path? Where you've justified it's only going to be just a little while that I'm not going to follow you? Is there any area in your life right now where actions that you're justifying when you really know what you're doing, what God doesn't want you to do? As so often is the case when we take a step away from God, even with the full intention of coming back, what was supposed to be a short journey ends up consuming years. We end up going further down the wrong path than we anticipated. The cost becomes greater. The journey back to God becomes harder. The temptation that made it seem like it was the better choice. But the negative fallout and impact is so much greater. Elimelech was only going for this short time. But verse 4 tells us, The family had been in Moab for 10 years. In those years, Elimelech dies, and his two sons, Malion and Kilion, marry Moabite women, a situation that was greatly looked down upon. God didn't want his people marrying foreigners, not because they were foreigners, but because they did not believe in him, because their marriage would be spiritually ununified because it would draw them away from serving God to serve false idols. From the Old Testament to today, God's standard of marriage has nothing to do with racial or ethnic or country of origin. We'll see that in our story. We see that throughout the Bible. 
That has nothing to do with those things. God's focus and standard of marriage is spiritual unity. And marrying a non-Jew meant abandoning God or the acceptance of a false religion, then God clearly didn't want that to happen. And that's the same truth for us. God's clear focus on our marriage partner is spiritual unity. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following says this. says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, God's clear focus on our marriage partner has always been that there be a spiritual unity and oneness around the truth of Jesus Christ. See, God's marital covenantal decree had been violated. Both marriages now have no children. Both marriages end in the tragic death of the husbands. The introduction ends with Naomi alone, empty, poor, In a foreign land with no husband, with no children, the line of Elimelech has come to an end. God allows suffering and loss in our life. Elimelech was suffering in the famine and he thought he saw a way out. But the compromise he chose to take devastating consequences. Often the best thing we can do in times of suffering and loss is to endure to endure, to seek God in the midst of our hardship. The quick way out often leads to much greater loss. The quick way out, the, the, the reason thinking often abandons faith and leads to greater loss. Elimelech's choice to run away, which seems so logical, turned out to be so tragic. The next person in our story is Naomi. How did she handle her suffering and loss? Naomi became bitter. Naomi feels like she's lost everything. She's in a state of total dependence. There's there's no reason to stay in Moab. There's no husband, no sons, no land, no food, no hope, no future. She's a foreigner. Who's going to help her? God has slammed the door shut living in Moab. God provides for her an answer. Go back home. You see, word providentially reaches Naomi that God has refilled the house of bread, Bethlehem. God has provided for his people the faintest hope, the glimmer of hope comes into Naomi's heart. Ruth 1, 6-7 says, And she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And had given them food. So she sent out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. After they had already set out to go on their trip to Bethlehem, Naomi comes to the realization that the only real future for her daughters-in-law was back with their families in Moab. Three times she urges them to return, to go back. Though Naomi was struggling with her suffering and loss, She believed God could bless her daughters-in-law and prayed for them that God would show his loving kindness to them as they had shown to their husbands and to her 
that God would bless them with another husband. She knew all too well that in the world they lived in, in the time where they lived, security and well-being was dependent on being linked to some male. Naomi needed her daughters-in-law. She loved them and they loved her. Without them, the prospect of her life was even more greatly reduced. But even in the midst of her suffering and loss, she wanted what was best for them regardless of how it would impact her. She unselfingly placed the welfare of her daughters-in-law above her own. Shows her noble character. She logically reasons that they, they need to get married and the best way, the only way from her perspective for that to happen was for them to go back to their people. Naomi believed there could be no future for these women in the foreign land of Israel for them. In that day, being a widow was a hard life. Being a widow with no children was a very hard life. And that day, being a widow with no children, we've been totally dependent on the generosity of your extended family and your clan for survival. But in those days, being a foreign widow with no children would have been even so much harder. Naomi's perspective of God had been reduced to hurt and pain. This great God who had blessed other people had turned her hand against her. Part of her argument for the daughters to leave her in verse 13 was that there's no hope for her because God's hand had turned against her. And and who would want to be with such a condemned person? To stick with her would be to doom yourself to the same fate as her. Anyone connected with her could expect the same thing from God. She feels that God's out to get her, that God is punishing her. But the story goes on. We'll find out, and she will find out that that is just not true. It never is. It's always so dangerous to take some snapshots of our lives and then come to conclusions about what God is doing. It's always dangerous because we come to the wrong conclusions. Whether we're in a time of blessing or in a time of suffering, we are not God and we cannot correctly evaluate the circumstances of our lives to understand God's motives and plans. We can't do that because we're not God. Our circumstances should drive us to, to turn to God, to turn to his character, who we know who he is, not to some conjecture of our own speculations of God's character and motives. Our circumstances and unanswered questions should drive us to faith and to trust deeper into him. The incredible suffering and injustice of life left Naomi hopeless and alone and depressed. But she hadn't given up on God. she became become so embittered that she could only see the negative, but she hadn't given up. As Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, we catch another glimpse into her suffering with her blurred perception of God. Listen to Ruth 1, 19-21. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi. 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. As the town women are stirred by her sudden reappearance, news starts to spread around town. Naomi has returned. Naomi is back. In her conversation with the town's ladies, she makes a play on words with her name. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me lovely. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter, she said. From her broken, distorted, and negative perspective, all she could see was her loss. She left Bethlehem full, a husband and two sons with hope, and now she's returning empty. Often in the pain and suffering of life, our perception can be obscured. Be obscured. We depend on our logic, on our human reasoning. And often it breaks down in the midst of pain. In this passage, he calls God the Almighty God, El Shaddai, acknowledging his sovereignty and saying that he made her life bitter and had brought all this misfortune into her life. She calls her God Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who has afflicted her and brought her back empty. Her response to her suffering and loss was to become bitter. All she could see was her loss. All she could see was the negative. She's returning empty, unfulfilled, bitter. She could see nothing else. She's completely absorbed into her own pain and bitterness. Her whole complaint is voiced in the singular, me, me, me. Often in the midst of suffering and pain, we can become self-absorbed. We can become unable to see beyond ourselves, to get a clear picture of God, to get a clear picture and understanding of our circumstances and ourselves. Naomi was there. So many of us have been there. We understand Naomi. We empathize with Naomi. But there are two very important realities that Naomi is missing right from this passage. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you see what she's not seeing? She's not alone. And she's not empty. Standing right next to her is Ruth. Naomi is blind to God's great provision for her. Ruth stands as an outright contradiction to Naomi's bitter words. Sure, she has suffered. The losses have been great. But she's not alone. She's not coming back empty. The author so eloquently arranges Naomi's bitterness and those empty comments right after Ruth's stirring comments of faith and fidelity and commitment. We're supposed to see, we're supposed to understand that God has not left Naomi alone. God has provided for her. Not only has God provided Ruth, but he brought them back when? At the time of the harvest. She's experienced a lot of real heartache. But she's not alone. She's not empty. 
So often in the midst of our suffering and loss, like Naomi, we can't see it. We have such a blurred perspective that we can't see how God is right there in the midst of our hurt and of our pain. He's right there. God wants to tell you this morning that he's right there. He's with you in the heartache, in the affliction, in the loss. Where is God? He's right there with you with the power to help you and to encourage you and to lead you. You are not alone. You are not empty. God is working out his plan for you in the midst of the difficulties and heartaches of our lives. Call upon God. Call upon God to open your eyes so that you can see his love, so you can see his provision, his protection in the midst of your life struggles. Work hard to to get and maintain a godly perspective on life, to seek God, seek his will, seek his wisdom. When life is full of struggling and loss, don't let it turn to bitterness. The next character's response we're going to look at this morning is Orpah, the other daughter-in-law. When suffering and loss came into Orpah's life, what did she do? She left for home. Naomi pleads with her daughter-in-law to leave and to go back home. At first, Orpah refused to go. Naomi's crying, Orpah's crying, Ruth is crying. Orpah feels a responsibility to Naomi. These are hard days with difficult decisions. But Naomi continues to plead with her daughter-in-law, and finally, as they're all weeping again, Orpah kisses Naomi and leaves. It's a very understandable response especially after Naomi paints such a dire picture of life with her. Orpah's already faced such suffering and loss. Why willingly put yourself through even more if you can get out of it? After Orpah left, Naomi pleads with Ruth again to leave. Naomi hits on the key issue at the the choice that's at hand. The choice isn't just about the prospects of getting a husband or not. The choice isn't just about trying to avoid a life of widowhood. No, it's not. It's deeper than that. What's the real choice before these two women? What God do you choose to follow? Which God are you going to believe in that has the best plan for you? Which God are you going to go serve who's going to take care of your future? It always comes down to that. It always comes down to that question. Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Orpah didn't just leave Naomi. She left Yahweh. She didn't just leave her relationship with her mother-in-law, but she left any ties to the one true God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, El Shaddai, the almighty God. How often have you heard of someone who has left the faith because they couldn't get God's perspective in a time of suffering or loss? Perhaps you know a friend or a family member which chose to leave God because they couldn't understand how can a loving God allow such Suffering and loss. It's a very hard question. And the answer is not simple. How can our great, sovereign, powerful God 
be so great and so good, so loving, and yet we experience such suffering and loss. The answer is not simple because the answer requires faith. I came across this story that I think helps us come to to an answer. The story is told about one minister who returned to his pulpit 10 days after his son's untimely death. Under duress, he read the text, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Visibly struggling, he said, I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize that I only see in part, I only know in part. It's like the miracle of the shipyard, he said. Almost every part of a great ocean-going vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part, be it a steel plate out of the hull or a, or a huge rudder and throw it into the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted into place, then this massive steel ship floats. It's virtually unsinkable. Taken by itself, he said, my son's untimely death is senseless. Thrown into the sea of Romans 8.28, and it sinks. But yet I still believe when the eternal shipbuilder has finally finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even the senseless tragedy will somehow work out for his eternal good. See, this is the great challenge of our faith. When we face untold suffering, the challenge of our faith is to allow our God to be God, to see his full character. When we only see in part, and he alone can see the whole, or left. How about us? We're going to abandon God in the midst of the difficulties of our lives? When we can't see the path forward, we're going to cling to our faith. We're going to choose him, or we're going to leave him. The last person we're going to look at today on how they responded to their suffering and pain is Ruth. How did Ruth respond to life's difficult situation? Ruth responded with faith. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord do to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What powerful words, right? What an amazing expression of devotion and loyalty and commitment. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. The only thing that will separate me from you will be death. See, something of substance has happened to Ruth. 
Something significant is going on in the side of Ruth. Ruth chose a life of widowhood. Ruth willingly chose one of the hardest lives of all, being a foreign widow with no children. I choose that. Why? Why would she choose that? Two reasons. To serve God, to serve Naomi. To serve Naomi, to serve her Lord, Yahweh. Naomi's life was not easy, and the present suffering she was under was significant. But God, but she didn't abandon God. She was dealing with it in faith. She was returning to him. She was going back to him. Naomi's testimony of faith, Naomi's devotion to God, it was real and it was evident. Even in the midst of her brokenness, Ruth saw that. Ruth saw something different about Naomi's God. See, Yahweh cares. Naomi's God listened. Naomi's God cared so much that he wanted their love. Naomi's God cared so much that he wanted to help her in difficult, depressing days. Naomi's God wasn't there to be appeased like some idol, like, like Ruth had grown up with in her childhood. No, Yahweh was different. Relationship. He'd have conversation. Naomi's faith was real. And Ruth had seen it over and over and over again. Naomi's faith wasn't perfect. Do you know anybody who is? But it was genuine. It was substantive. It was real. She felt empty. She felt lost. But she was returning to her God. When it comes to dealing with the suffering and loss in our lives, The only suitable answer is God. When it comes to dealing with the suffering and loss in our lives, the only suitable answer is God. Naomi knew that, and Ruth knew that. Only God can bring meaning to meaningless. Only God can bring hope to hopelessness. Only God can make sense of the senseless. Only God can bring good from suffering. Ruth responded with faith by seeing Naomi's faith. Because only God is the answer to the hardest questions of life. That video we sang earlier during offertory, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, was written by William Cowper, 1774. One author wrote that William Cowper was keenly aware of the truth that God moves in mysterious ways. His life, as described in a biography of Cowper, seems to have been one of one long accumulation of pain. That's the description of this man's life. One long accumulation of pain. But this hymn writer trusted by faith, not perfectly, but perseveringly, that in this mysterious and maddening providence, God was working his will. Cowper's hymn writing came as a result of his friendship with John Newton. They became friends in 1767, and Cowper moved to Alney, England to be under Newton's ministry. Newton saw Cowper's bent to 
melancholy and reclusiveness and drew him into the ministry of visitation as much as he could. They would take long walks together between homes and talk of God and his purposes. Then in 1769, Newton got the idea of collaborating with Cowper on the book of hymns to be sung by their church. Several hymns in our hymn book written by William Cowper. He thought it would be good for Cowper's poetic bent to be engaged in this process. The hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, is a combination of the assertions about God's goodness, his sovereignty, his wisdom, and the commands of his followers to take courage and to trust in him. The hymn's a beautiful expression of the kind of faith that sustained Cowper through long periods of darkness and depression and discouragement. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Powerful. The difficulties are real. Yes, life is hard. We don't understand why so often. I've been in the room when a loved one dies. I received that call that my brother had died. And now I had to call the rest of my family with the news. I've seen the tears of a heart so broken. I've sat there, myself and with others, numb. Shock. You don't even know what to say. You don't know what to feel. I've heard the broken hearts of the deep agony of questions. We've seen the tears of abandonment. We have held the hand of emptiness. We know. We all know the difficulties of life. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, it's hard. Yes, There are questions, and we don't understand why. But we do know, right? We do trust. We do have faith that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind the real challenges and loss and difficulties of our life stands our forever loving, sovereign God. Ruth, chapter 1, teaches us that. When it comes to dealing with the suffering and loss in our lives, the only suitable answer is God. Trust Him today. Let's pray. Lord, this story from so long ago nails us right where we're at, the challenges that we face, the heartaches of our lives, the question of our sovereign God, our good God, our loving God, and yet the loss and the heartache, the faith, the trust. 
We know God. What we can't see, you see. What we don't know, you know. We'll get lost in the sea like that floating piece of steel. Instead, in you becomes a plan, a will, an eternal good. And we trust that. We believe it. And so now we come to you in this honesty of these moments to just kind of come back like Naomi did, like Ruth did, to come back to you. To put our trust and our faith in you, who you are, your sovereign plan in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.